Hello there, welcome to episode 78 of Right Where You're Sitting Now, uh, the podcast for the site sittingnow.co.uk. Um, joining me this week is a returning guest from the past, someone that hasn't been on for a, God knows how long. When was it? Ten when? years. Ten years. It's been a while. Ten lonely long years. <laughs> yeah, well, I just left him there. He's just been there on his own. It's, Out on the tundra. It's Mr. Sam Horn. How have you been, sir? Yeah, all right. You? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Uh, so today we're covering a subject. I, I say this often in the intro. Like it's one of the, there's so many subjects we should have covered by now, but haven't. And this is one I've been really looking forward to covering. Actually, uh, who are we talking about today? Today we will be talking about Charles Manson and specifically uh, Nicholas Shrek's new book, The Manson File: Myth and Reality of an Outlaw Shaman. It's a new book. It's a revised, expanded upon edition. Uh, the original came out sometime in the 80s and was quite a thin book but yeah I've got it in front of me now just having a look at it it's lovely big it's a hefty full, boy full of paper <laughs> yeah loads of words yeah that's what you want in a book <laughs> some, some pictures <laughs> yeah. ticks all the boxes it does it does and it's a very well written book as well yeah and, um, we're big fans of uh, Mr Shrek um, yeah he's great yeah we've uh, had him on previously uh listeners will be well acquainted with him i hope and yeah we're going to talk to him today about his new book um we're going to go into some of the the myths and some of the realities yeah the realities of uh of what actually happened so uh let's uh let's go over to that interview right now Hello, Nicholas Shrek. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. How have you been keeping? My pleasure. Yes, it's been a long time and a very surreal era that we have all endured since the last we spoke at the height of the pandemic. And here we are in the supposedly post-normal world that isn't normal at all. So <laughs> good to be back. Thank you for inviting me. That's great. So how, did, how, how was your uh, lockdown stroke COVID experience over there? Well, uh, uh, the first year was actually a welcome relief from my usual workaholic schedule, and I managed to be even more of a workaholic during it. I recorded several albums and an EP in the first year of the lockdown. Uh, the Manson file, which we will be discussing, was delayed in its publication because of the manufacture crisis that occurred here in Germany because of our very strict lockdown, um, but that finally was resolved in May of this year, and um, I was able to write several other books and finish. Um, some, some of my older books are being republished, like The Satanic Screen is coming out on Head Press uh, on a French company called um, uh, Edition Pansof. Uh, an Italian edition. So a lot of my other books too, like The Manson File, are coming out in ultimate, final, revised and updated editions. And I'm working on some new books as well. So that part of the pandemic was fine. And then the second year, I found catastrophic, actually, because by that time, it seemed to me that almost everyone in the world started going crazy. And I don't know if you noticed that too. And, and that trend doesn't seem to have stopped. No, so uh, I've definitely noticed a shift in people's behaviour. Strangely, just like you know, day-to-day -day interactions with people, like people seem more aggressive and more sort of like 
disconnected that's one thing i've noticed as well it's like more than normal because <laughs> i think people absolutely feel, yeah. no that's that's actually very astute those are those are the two behaviors i've noted people are are very thin-skinned quick to be insulted uh, there's a lot more paranoia in general and and yeah definitely volatile aggressive and and a bit almost like people are in a state of disassociation not not quite there so it's like the the world is functioning, but with with a zombie crew at the at the head here. And yeah, that I I've often wondered if there's if even COVID has caused neurological damage to people because it is quite remarkable. I've noticed a change exactly as you've described. Yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's very worrying. Um, and also, of course, with the added tension of of Russia, um, that's I think that's probably just overloaded people or something i don't i'm not quite sure it's uh... no I, th I, th I think with all the political instability the political divisiveness which especially in our two anglo countries and in, in the ununited kingdom and the ununited states the the political dichotomy between so-called left and right has reached a fever pitch of ugliness and that and that made people tense to begin with and then world war three on our doorstep here in Germany, you know, just one country away, yes, it's definitely set people on edge, and how could it not? But, you know, I expected apocalyptic times, even during the Radio Werewolf era, our album Songs for the End of the World sort of prophesied that in 1990. So I'm not totally surprised, but it's a bit more like, um, like what Yeats wrote about the world ending, or T.S. Eliot, rather, Sorry, got my poets wrong with the, the end of the world coming with a whimper and not a bang. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's pretty much summed it up. Yeah. Um, so today we're going to be talking about um, Charles Manson and on the eve of the UK release of your, oh, it's like a re-release of your book, isn't it? Um, the Manson File. Um, right. Yeah. And so... Obviously, we've never ca covered Charles Manson on this show, but before we go, so I'd like to talk to you kind of about, I think what I'd like to look at is the kind of um, the folklore or the kind of the fake version of what happened with Charles Manson's story. Mm -hmm. And then right. obviously uh, look into your, a bit into your research and like look at the kind of tensions between the two. But first of all, this is more of a general question, I guess, with like, why do people sort of want to believe official stories, even after they've been like so clearly debunked? All this, this, what, what is this kind of predilection? Do you think that people have? Uh, that, to that, that's a good question. That was exactly what I was going to begin uh, with saying. Is what, you know, why is a fifty-three-year-old murder case and and the whole entire phenomenon, which goes well beyond just the crimes, it gets into every subject you can imagine. It's a much bigger phenomenon than people realize, the Manson thing. But yes, exactly. This, this is a, a sea change, I think, in human history where conspiracy theories and paranoid explanations for reality have reached a fever pitch in the past couple of years, I mean, maybe since 2016 or so, I would say, could be a turning point for that. And obviously, what you're saying is true. Many, you know, the, the, the broad, unwashed masses cling to the official narratives of everything. But at the same time, there's a huge groundswell of mistrust of institutions and almost a knee-jerk belief 
among some people that the official story about everything is untrue. And unfortunately, what happens is then sheer fiction and whatever bullshit somebody has written on the most easily accessible internet source is where people go for their information. But there is definitely a great deal of doubt of all these official narratives. The unfortunate thing is, in that vacuum of knowledge, people are, are they don't have enough critical thinking or education or logic to figure out where to go to get the real story. Uh, and this is one of those stories where uh, since the death of Vincent Bugliosi, the if people don't know who he was, the prosecuting district attorney who supposedly, quote, won the Charles Manson case and who wrote the book Helter Skelter, which remains what the average broad masses consider the definitive story about this saga, even though it is a lie pretty much from first page to the end, um, since his death, there has been a lot of doubt and a lot of questions about the official story. Unfortunately, similar to the JFK assassination, which I've also researched and will be releasing a novel about that historical anomaly as well, um, again, in the vacuum of information, people doubt the official story, but spurious and, and phony conspiracy theories have have taken over logic with the Manson case. Like, I don't know if you're aware, when I was in London recently signing the British edition of the book, a lot of people came up to me and assumed that I would be covering this most recent conspiracy theory about Manson, that he was a CIA stooge, that it had to do with with intelligence agency, mind control, and MK Ultra. I don't know if you're familiar with how popular that's become among certain elements of the lunatic fringe. So, and that's not true either, you know. I wasn't, I wasn't aware of that becoming popular now, but I know that, you know, certainly a number of years ago, that was um, a very popular uh, topic of conversation around Manson, that he was a CIA agent or, and it was all to do with MK uh, Ultra. Yeah. Right. It's it's not a it's Come not a new around. idea. Right. In fact, May Brussel, who was one of the pioneers of this kind of neo conspiracy thinking, uh, popularized that sort of thinking even in the early 70s. Um, and, and, you know, now that's become almost like uh, for, for your listeners who may not know the basic official narrative, which Helter Skelter, the book and the two terrible TV movies pretty much established as the uh, authorized reality, um, that presented, as I think most of your listeners would at least vaguely know, that these murders were committed by this insane cult leader who somehow hypnotized these innocent young people with the influence of LSD and some sort of brainwashing techniques to go kill random strangers to either A, begin a race war, B, get revenge on the music industry for being turned down by the record producer Terry Melcher, who was the son of Doris Day, and just in general, uh, also people also believe it was a satanic uh, ritual, which is something that began immediately after the murders, the sensationalized newspapers, 
presented it as a ritual killing. So it was none of those things, none of them. But that, if you ask the average person on the street, if they even remember the details of this half-century-old crime, that's what they'd probably tell you. And now, after the, it's sort of the QAnon-ish way of thinking that seeped into public discourse in in the past five years or so, um, and the belief in a deep state and all of that sort of thing, which there is some veracity to it, though it's wildly exaggerated. Now a lot of people are willing to believe that that Charlie, you know, was a CIA agent and that he was brain he was taught brainwashing techniques and none of that is true and so i have to sort of fight a two front war against the helter skelter race war beatles myth and now the newer myth of you know this was a government plot to destroy the hippie movement and all of that and so does that sort of explain the official narrative of what we're dealing with so it, in a way, that it's a healthy thing that a lot, millions of people more than ever are questioning official stories, but they're coming up with total bullshit answers like false flags and, you know, crisis actors and all of that sort of thing, which I, I dealt with actually in music, which is the way I usually deal with things that trouble me in, in my 2020 uh, EP I'm Afraid of America, I have two songs. One is called They, and the other song is called The Nice People, and it mocks both the the so-called right-wing conspiracy theories and the left-wing woke hysterical conspiracy theories equally. So it's a very germane question to begin our discussion, because this is an era where people are questioning official narratives, but unfortunately going to the wrong quote authorities to get answers one thing that i've found quite interesting in any with any uh discussion about manson that's ever come up with people is obviously a lot of people don't know uh your research that i've spoken to and just have the bugliosi version of events mm -hmm. and um or not even quite that but you try to present to them uh a narrative which says this was some murders about a bad drug deal, essentially, you know, cutting a long story short. And that right. is the lot that seems to, you know, that's kind of the most reasonable explanation over uh, cults, uh, you know, triggering some race war or, uh, you know, Manson being a CIA agent. Yet that seems to be the one that people don't want to believe. It's just like, oh, yeah. it's not as it is. Is it because it's not exciting enough for people? So, or, I mean, you know. Yes, people, I, I mean, it's a puzzle to me. I mean, I've been researching this deeply for 33 years, which is how long I knew Charles, and, and looking into it even before I knew him, although uh, going into many dead ends because I didn't know myself until I learned through my own research and bizarre happenstances in my life what really happened. But yes, if you use Occam's razor, what is more likely that a... Uh, a cult of brainwashed satanic killers went and killed random strangers to start a race war. Um, the CIA planned these killings to deliberately destroy the hippie movement, or that the two well-known drug dealers who were killed that night 
Wojtek Frakowski and Jay Sebring uh, were killed because they were involved in a drug deal dispute with, with two other well-known drug dealers, Linda Kasabian and Tex Watson. And in fact, as you will find in the introduction to the revised and updated Manson file, uh, I, I bring it up in the introduction. This has been confirmed. I mean, uh, several people spoke to me confidentially, people who knew Roman Polanski, who knew Sharon Tate, who knew Wojtek Frakowski, Abigail Folger, talked to me and told me that, of course, it was an open secret among their circle of friends and associates that it was about a drug deal gone wrong. And as I explain in the book in detail, uh, my first, I had always suspected that could be true, but I had no evidence of it until a friend and acting colleague of Sharon Tate, the German-English actor Ferdinand Main, who portrayed the vampire Count von Krolock in Polanski's film Dance of the Vampires, told me that you know, everybody in Polanski's circle knew this was about a drug deal that, that involved Wojtek Frakowski inviting hippies and all kinds of people over to Sharon Tate's house while she was away in Rome um, making this last film that she did, and Polanski was in London. And while they were away, uh, they, you know, Frakowski, who was a, a friend of Polanski since his Polish days had a lot, had basically been running a drug dealing operation out of his out of Polanski's living room and that's what happened and there was no doubt about it and then I spoke to Gene Gutowski who was one of Polanski's best friends a producer of his films he went into great detail which you will now find explained in exhaustive detail in the criminal chapter of my book um, when he was alive, he asked me not to reveal his identity. So in the 2011 edition of the book, I identified him as Mr. X and really didn't get into a lot of the details because it would have made it clear who he was. He told me, and Zena, who was present during this long discussion with him, uh, that he didn't want to be identified, but that after he died, we could. So this new updated edition of the Manson file gets into what Gene Gutowski told us in great detail about the drug dealing, about the cover-up, which he gleefully admitted that he participated in. Um, and then and what I was saying is in the introduction to the new book, uh, a guy named Markham, who J Jim Markham, who was J.C. Brings, and that is the hairdresser ex-boyfriend of Sharon Tate, who was also killed that night. In the 2011 edition of my book, I made it clear that Jay Sebring was one of the major drug dealers to the stars. He had a successful hair salon business for men, and under cover of that, he would be, you know, it was a front for drug dealing, mostly cocaine, acid, mescaline, etc. And Markham, who was the heir apparent of the Sebring International business, admitted in 2019 to The Hollywood Reporter, and I quote this article in detail in the Manson file, that he never believed the race war helter-skelter nonsense, and that he knew it was about a drug deal confrontation between the Manson commune 
and Sebring and Frakowski, and he admitted publicly uh, that, and this is something too that I had mentioned from my own research in the 2011 edition, and I expand upon in the new edition, that J. Sebring was known as the Candyman, uh, a reference to his, uh, you know, his major narcotics trafficking sideline. So that was admitted by one of J. Sebring's best friends. But interestingly, as I point out in the Manson file, no other syndicated newspaper picked it up. Nobody has covered, even though every little detail about this story, you know, floods the media, nobody wants to hear that. So it's more, what you say is true, your question, uh, as far as yes, it's not as exciting to believe that this was just a squalid drug deal in the entertainment industry of the kind of thing that goes on every night in Los Angeles. Um, it's not only that people prefer the horror story of Helter Skelter or the, the more thrilling idea that this was a CIA conspiracy. It's also that the powers that be in Hollywood and the mafia who were involved and, and worked hand in hand with the entertainment industry and many major figures in the music industry, which we can get into and who are described in detail in the book, conspired with major forces in organized crime to make sure that this story was not told. So it's not only that the masses are incurious and tend to believe sensationalism rather than the more banal reality of a drug deal, it's also that many powerful forces, including it, and I get into this in the book, the President of the United States in 1969 and 70, Richard Milhouse Nixon, conspired to keep this quiet, including Governor Ronald Reagan, who was a former lover of Doris Day, the, the mother of Terry Melcher. Um, you know, so very powerful figures conspired to make sure, and that's why 53, 54 years later, we are still talking about this and trying to get to the bottom of what really happened. So it isn't just public ignorance, it's also the powers that be going out of their way to silence the truth about what happened. It is unusual, isn't it? I mean, the, uh, even in sort of some fairly extreme killing kind of you know, crime-related cases, um, the offenders, you know, quote-unquote, um, Get, do get released eventually from prison don't they generally but it seems like anyone involved with Manson is it's just like that's it they're they're, they're not being released <laughs> um or you know well not everyone but you know like the, the major kind of players at least within the well, uh, the story. only the only yes that's exactly true and that's that is I mean justice whatever you may think of the, of these killings these were very young people with very little criminal background except for Susan Atkins who was robbing people from 1966 on, and Linda Kasabian, who was a major drug dealer who had been arrested for a pretty significant acid network out of Boston as early as 1967. They both had a criminal record, and, and them getting involved in a drug dealing murder is, is not even remotely surprising. It, it would be inevitable that they would. But most of these people, this was their first offense, um, and it's only because of the mythic, sensational bullshit story that's been told, which presents 
Manson as the epitome of evil, which we should get into. Why is this petty criminal considered to be the equal of, you know, other social scarecrows like Hitler or the devil? I mean, really, he's, he's, there's nobody compare. That's about it. They're at the top of the peak of most hated figures. But why? It's a completely irrational, very primitive scapegoating. People seem to need a devil. But when you look at Charlie's actual crimes, it's very difficult to see compared to, you know, some of the truly horrific people in history, why he has become known as the most evil, well, one of the most evil people of the 20, 20th century, at least. Um, yeah, so that's the reason that none of these people have been released. Uh, if you go by criminal precedent, even in America, which tends to be quite draconian, in punishment compared to European countries or to England, um, people on a first offense in in what was essentially a drug robbery would have been released years ago, and but they never will be because of the the he, just the vast hold that this myth has on people's imagination. Because obviously, the governor of California is not going to want to be held responsible for letting these demons out of prison. Um, but by any precedent of justice, you know, th these are harmless old people at this point. I don't know about Tex Watson, who maybe your listeners don't know, was really the person who did all the stabbing and killing. I don't know that he should be released, because I do believe he is a genuine sociopath who is capable of great violence still. But the others... You know, I don't have any sympathy for what they did, but if you want to go by legal precedent, the only reason they're still in prison for um, their, almost their entire lives is because of how huge this myth of ultimate evil and the Manson family is. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, it's almost become folklore now, hasn't it? It's sort of moved beyond legend into folklore, which is kind of... Uh, it's. I've never seen another case like it in terms of, you know, in America at least, that's so folkloric. Right. Well, that's why my book is subtitled Myth and Reality of an Outlaw Shaman, because to explain it at all, and especially as this becomes ancient history, um, you know, people don't remember what the counterculture in the 60s and the rock and roll revolution and the sexual revolution and the LSD craze were all about. So... It's very hard for, for young people today to even imagine that world. Um, so all of the, the social and historical context has to be explained, as I do in my book. And, as you say, so much folk, pretty much what, almost, like if you just named a few random, quote, facts of what people believe about the Manson phenomenon, they are bound to be a lie. And they are literally folklore. He he has become a character. Well, he himself pointed out, and I quote this in the in the introduction to my book. Charlie said of himself, "You know, someday people won't even know Manson was a real person," and he compared himself to Dracula, who he said, "What you know, a lot of people don't know that Dracula was based on Vlad the Impaler." And I, I mention in the book that the Charles Manson I knew for decades, the real human being has as much to do with this Charles Manson character, folklore figure that people believe he was, as the historical Vlad the Impaler 
has to do with Count Dracula that Bram Stoker created. And in many ways, this character, Charles Manson, that Vincent Bugliosi presented and that Ed Sanders and other authors have elaborated on, he's really more of a fictional character that was created by the news media and by this corrupt prosecutor, Bugliosi, and, and many other lazy or lying authors who have, who have riffed on that theme. The real human being has almost nothing to do with this character. And he was aware of that, and, and sort of to his own self-destruction, he played that part when a camera was on or the media was around him. Kind of puzzlingly to me, and I asked him about it, he, he played up that evil role. You know, he, he kind of delighted in mocking the media by giving them what they wanted, by being a mirror. If, if they wanted him to be the devil, he played the devil. But yeah, oh, so I mean, if you named a few facts that people think, well, this is the truth about the Manson case, it would probably be a totally fictional folklore story that has been propagated to hide or conceal an uncomfortable truth. And that's what my book's really about, is it, it is basically saying, here's the myth and here's the reality. And a lot of the myths and realities are to cover up how well major entertainment industry figures knew Charlie, uh, had sex with him and his commune, were dealing drugs with him and his commune, and were involved in other criminal operations of every kind, and, and how this seeped into the collusion between organized crime and the Hollywood film industry and the music industry. That, that's a lot of what is hidden here. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how your relationship started with with Charles Manson like how um how did how did you meet like how did you sort of become involved with this this whole uh this whole mess of uh stuff <laughs> mm -hmm. right well I added a new chapter to this version of the Manson file that gets into my personal relationship with him which I didn't really get into in the earlier editions because maybe now that he's passed it's even easier for me to see it in context properly um, as I describe in the book, I, I kind of got dragged into this rabbit hole. I mentioned that in Alice in Wonderland, she falls into the rabbit hole when she's seven years old in, in, uh, in the book. And I was the same age. I was in Paris, and I saw this film by Polanski, Dance of the Vampires. And I even... Weirdly, my parents took a picture of me outside the theater where that happened, though there was no reason to, so I print that in the book. And this happened, I saw that film that stars Sharon Tate and made, was made by Roman Polanski a day or two before the murders happened in 1969. And I've had this weird feeling of dread when I watch the film, which I, in retrospect, see as a kind of premonition of something. So I feel that I was karmically connected to it even when it was happening in some mysterious way I can't explain. And then about a year later when the trial was happening, I became fascinated with the story. I intrinsically felt a certain sympathy for Charles and automatically an antipathy to Vincent Bugliosi, who struck me as a, a transparent liar of some kind. And 
so I was interested in the case, but obviously I didn't know anything more about it than anyone else. But I did, I did find the things that Charles was saying, they didn't strike me as lunatic madness. A lot of them made sense to me, which maybe is an indication of my own insanity, but to me, they made sense. And then in 1975, when Squeaky Fromm was involved in this ambiguous and abortive assassination attempt with Gerald Ford, if you remember that, do, do you, are you both aware of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I became fascinated with it again, and that was when they start when Squeaky Fromm started talking about Charlie's ecological ideas and his radical ideas of environmentalism and animal rights and that kind of thing, which was never discussed before. And that was when I realized, well, these people actually have a coherent ideology. They're not just, you know, mad, insane people trying to start a race war. They, they actually have some sort of philosophy, which is Charlie's Atwa idea, which sort of got off the ground at that point. So I became interested in that. And then briefly, I describe all this in the book, I met Timothy Leary, the 60s LSD guru, at a event in Los Angeles in 1976 called Books West. And he had just gotten out of prison with Charlie. He was in Folsom Prison and served time right next to him. And I asked him about that. And he, he sort of got me looking into this in a deeper way because he said nobody will ever know, I'm paraphrasing, the reality of what really happened. There's a lot more to this case than people know. And I'm sure he did know, because actually, as it turned out, I found out later, Leary was married to one of the women that visited Sharon Tate for this lunch meeting on the day of her death. So I have, and and he was deeply involved in the, you know, the, major narcotics trafficking network of called the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. So he would have been in a position to know. And so it was Timothy Leary who got me thinking there's more to this story than we are told. And then, and then later, I get into this in this chapter in the book, but to answer your question directly, in 1985, I wrote to Charlie about the Henry Rollins, uh, aborted attempt to put out one of Charlie's records, a recording that he'd made in prison, in Vacaville prison, and Rollins dropped the project because they, the company SST had gotten death threats and they felt like it wasn't worth putting out. And I wrote to Charlie saying, well, I will put it out if they won't. And we immediately struck up a rapport about music, about spirituality, mostly about other topics that had nothing to do with his notoriety or the crimes, and we immediately got to collaborating together. And to make a long story short, uh, at that time, he was working with another uh, ex-convict named Newell Emmons on a book called Manson in His Own Words. And at first, Charlie was enthusiastic about this book, but when it came out, he hated it because it totally distorted what he had told Emmons, the publishing company, had, had, you know, added a lot of nonsense to the book, and he felt it did not reflect him at all. And he said to me, well, you know, you're a writer, why don't you write the real Manson in his own words? And Sam, you mentioned that you have the 1988 edition 
of the Manson file, and that that was an antidote to Manson in his own words that Charlie himself encouraged me to put together, and he contributed writings he had done, put me in touch with people he knew, and that was the first emanation of this thing that eventually grew into the 2011 Char uh, Manson file, and now finally this, this final ultimate edition. And also in the interim, I made the documentary film Charles Manson Superstar, and in the process of that, I got to know Charlie as a human being. Uh, he would often have Xena and I field his requests from the media, like he got hundreds of requests for interviews and he didn't have time or inclination to answer them, so he would often give them to us to deal with the media for him. And I got to know him as a human being uh, through those many years of collaborating with him and working with him. So what was he like um, to sort of deal with? I mean, as a person, what was Charles Manson like? You know, that's something that's kind of fairly, there's a limited few people alive that have that kind of experience. So it'd be interesting to, uh, to you know, to hear that. Well, he was, he was a very, he, he was very contradictory. I mean, he, he was, as people who've looked into this know, very under the, Aegis of the Gnostic god Abraxas, who he interpreted as a god of contradictions and opposites, the devil and Christ, love and hate. And every when I think of Charles, his contradictions come to mind. He could be very generous, and he could be very stingy and petty. He could be very cheerful and humorous, and one of the things that I actually miss about him as a friend is his sense of humor, which is not the first thing people would think of with Charlie, but he was a very, just he had a very oblique view of the world, and it was hilarious, his view of humanity and of social events. He had he had this very dark sense of humor, but on the other hand, he, was, he had a terrible temper, which could change on a dime. He could completely become furiously angry about something, um, he was a very complicated person. He was very, very well informed on history, on military history, uh, on the history of, of crime in general. We talked about music a great deal. Really, really, I would say the topics we talked about most were music, sex, which he, like me, understood as a spiritual activity. He, he was very interested in the mystical experience as it's related to sexuality um and yeah we d we developed a friendship you know we we talked about everything under the sun people have the impression that i just interrogated him for these books but that was actually the exception not the rule and that created a certain amount of tension i mean we definitely had arguments and fighting about these issues because there were moments of contention he also had a very strong paranoid streak that made it difficult for me and you know he had many many friends um, most of whom are not known he had a lot of he was in touch with people all over the world and I think one thing they can all agree with is he had major trust issues and abandonment issues because of his difficult upbringing and being institutionalized and raised in reform school and juvenile hall and prison he found it very difficult to trust people.
So he was always trying to psych you out and test you. And, you know, it was trying to, to be his friend. You, you needed to have patience to deal with his temper, his suspicions. Like one, one thing I've mentioned in the book, that when the French edition of the Manson File, the last one in 2011, came out, um, he, I sent him the first copy from the printers, and he saw that it had a, it had a listing of all of his many records that came out, all the bootleg records and every single recording up to that date. And this kind of gives you an idea of his paranoia. He said to some mutual acquaintances, he said, man, Shrek is, is selling all my records in this catalog at the end of this book. And of course, I wasn't selling them. It was a discography to show how many records had been released to, to let people know that he actually was an accomplished musician and that, that far from his reputation as this talentless nobody that a lot of people admired his music. So he took that, his assumption was that I was selling his records. And so I had to assure him of that. And in his way, he apologized when he saw the English edition and he saw it was quite the opposite. But that sort of, you know, that sort of antagonism uh, definitely came up with me and my friendship with him and most people I know who knew him. Do you think it, that kind of mercurial nature to his personality is kind of, do you think that actually kind of assisted in the folkloric kind of element of, of, of the kind of the public perception of him? Because whenever he appeared, he always seemed to have that kind of mercurial, you know, one minute he was very friendly, the next minute he was quite aggressive. Well, not aggressive, but shouty, which I suppose is aggressive. So, um, but yeah. yeah. Do you think that maybe that was... Like yeah, when, yeah, like a lot of people who ideal, like I'm often, be, because I present Charlie as a human being rather than a mythical monster, I'm, you know, periodically accused of being a Manson apologist. But if you really read what I've said and written about him, I'm not. I think I have a very clear-headed idea of who he was, what his flaws were, what his virtues were, and what exactly his real crimes were, as opposed to what people think they were. And yes, that was one of the most puzzling aspects of his personality. Uh, let's take, you know, even before I knew him in, in 1970, during the court proceedings, which were, were one of the, you know, major media circuses of the 20th century, Charlie was more than capable, you know, he could have gone in there, cut his hair, worn a suit, and said, well, I don't even know these people very well. I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't order anyone to be killed. And he could have sat there mildly and not done. But instead, he did this weird thing, which he always said, I am a mirror. And whatever's reflected to me, I will become that. So for reasons that I never understood, and which I often asked him to explain, during the trial, he put on this act. I mean, he, he convicted himself, even if Vincent Bugliosi wasn't telling this ridiculous helter-skelter race war Beatles story. The way Charlie acted during the trial and the statements he made, any jury would have said, this is a dangerous guy who should be locked up. So, and, and, and you're exactly right. Whenever he was going to do a TV interview in the time that I knew him from 1986 onwards, I would say, why don't you just talk to him like you talk to me or other people you know? Why do you do this? As I got to know him better, I, I said, why do you do the Charlie Manson 
act instead of being the person you are. And he would think about it, but then once a Geraldo or a, you know, Tom Snyder or all the aggressive people would go in there to, to shake the cage of the monster, he would give them what they wanted. And he didn't have to. I mean, if you hear some of the tape recordings that I, that I have of, of my private discussions with him, which I have on my YouTube channel, the Nicholas Shrek channel, you can hear he's a very different person. And many other people who were friends of his had that experience. But he, he decided to play that character all it's worth. And that is one of his many ambiguities. He, he, he helped to create this legend and folklore. You're absolutely right. He didn't, he didn't do a lot. He was eager to say it was bullshit and that he wasn't the person the media presented him as. But if you really wanted him to publicly admit what really happened and who he really was, he was rather loath to do that. Assuming um, that the listeners already know a bit or have an idea of, you know, the uh, general sense of what happened in 69, what actually happened in, and what does your research uh, Right. Well, what what people think happened, I mean, probably the, there there are three different things nowadays that that three different motives have been pushed forth enough that there are at least three different constituencies that believe motive A, B, or C. Sort of like the Jack the Ripper case or the JFK assassination. You know, there are basic ideas that circulate, and the most common is the idea that. Charlie deliberately set out to manipulate and hypnotize these young people in his commune, which is presented as an organized cult with a specific ideology, which it was not. It was just a bunch of misfits and runaways and crooks hanging out together. There, there was no cult. There was no family. There was no, it, it wasn't a sect of some kind. But the general belief is he was the ultimate cult leader who somehow hypnotized these innocent young hippies to go kill random strangers for these vague ideological reasons, a race war and that kind of thing, an ultimate ethnic apocalypse that was called Helter Skelter and that, and that he was inspired to do this by literally believing that the Beatles were sending messages to him through the White Album. The second thing that is believed by, by another quadrant of people is that the murders were solely committed because of Bobby Beausoleil, who was not an actual member of the Manson Commune, but an associate and friend of Charlie, a fellow musician, who killed a drug... Well, not a, I, I don't want to define Gary Hinman as purely a drug dealer, but he was a drug dealer and that's why he got killed. Bobby Beausoleil killed Gary Hinman in July of 1969. Are, are you both aware of that a little bit, or should I explain that? Yeah, I'm aware of it, but maybe a little bit of explanation. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Ga Gary Hinman was a local hippie who Charlie and Bobby Beausoleil knew since 1967 even, since fall of 67, he lived in Topanga Canyon, that was the hippie community, and he, he was a friend of the commune, but not really a member, 
And to make a long story short, in 1969, the Straight Satan's Biker Club, an outlaw motorcycle club, were celebrating their 10th anniversary, and they wanted mescaline for the celebration. And Bobby Beausoleil wanted to get in with this biker club, so he volunteered to get the mescaline from Gary Hinman, who, who was making it uh, in a lab, an amateur mescaline manufacturer in this little house in Topanga Canyon. And the, for some reason or other, the mescaline came out badly. It poisoned some of the bikers. And Beausoleil was told by Danny DiCarlo, the treasurer of the Straight Satan's Motorcycle Club, go back and get our money, a thousand bucks, which they had paid for the mescaline. Beausoleil went back to Gary Hinman's house, who was a friend of his, and he had even lived at Gary Hinman's. Um, and he killed him in a dispute about getting this money back, which I describe in detail in the book. That's the short story of it. And that sort, the, uh, some people believe, and there's a grain of truth to this, but it's not at all the real motive. Some people believe that the Cielo Drive and La Bianca murders were committed to make it look like after Bobby Beausoleil was arrested on August 6th, that on August 8, 9, and 10, that the Cielo Drive and Waverly murders were committed to make it look like Beausoleil was still, or, or that the killer was still at large, which the plan, according to this part of the folklore, was that then the police would let Bobby Beausoleil go because they would have thought, and, and the reason according to that strain of the myth, is that, you know, these blood messages that were left, pig, political piggy, rise, and all that, the, the writing of blood on the walls of the victims was made to look similar to the Bobby Beausoleil murder. Now, that's true, but that was not the motive for the murder. So a lot of people these days, I think, have dismissed Helter Skelter and the race war Beatles nonsense but they may believe this more reasonable thing that they committed the crimes to free Bobby Beausoleil. I think that was just decoration. That was an afterthought, uh, a subsidiary aspect of these crimes. It was not the motive. And the inter of interest to our listeners, because we talk a lot about him, uh, Kenneth Anger was involved with Bobby Beausoleil, wasn't he? And, uh, he, was, he was indeed. He yes. uh, employed um, him to score one of his films, I believe. Yeah, no. Kenneth Anger, in many ways, is integral to all of this happening. Um, Kenneth knew, met Bobby Beausoleil at a happening at a church in San Francisco during the height of the Summer of Love in 1967. He basically had a crush on him, and uh, he said to him, You are my Lucifer, and he, he wanted to cast him in this film he was making at the time called Lucifer Rising, which was not completed until 1980 after many different castings. At first, Anger was going to cast this child named Godot, who was the son of, um, a, of a hippie, not a hippie couple, but a countercultural couple, very famous in Hollywood, that were connected to Frank Zappa and, and that entourage. And this kid Godot died by falling through um, from a roof and, and died 
because of malpractice. So the sort of curse of people that anger was casting as Lucifer is a part of the story too, as far as the metaphysical and occult element of the saga. So this kid who he was casting as Lucifer died in this accident. Then he met Beausoleil, who he asked to play Lucifer in his film, and he moved in with anger to this house called the Russian Embassy, which was a, has become a, a, quite notorious in the folklore. And then anger and Beausoleil, according to who you believe, had a lover spat or just a disagreement, depending on who's telling the tale. And Beausoleil left San Francisco and moved to Topanga Canyon, where he met Gary Hinman, who he ended up killing. And Kenneth changes his story as, you know, use, use the word mercurial. Anger is even more mercurial than Charlie was. But he claimed to have put a spell or curse on Beausoleil because he abandoned him and claims that he stole the film Lucifer Rising, which according to my research is not true. So anger even takes credit for getting Beausoleil in prison in a bizarre way. So yeah, Kenneth Anger was very integral to this whole story happening. And there's, um, there's, there seems to be like a kind of slightly occult nature to um, at least the media's telling of um, of the Manson story, doesn't there? I mean, they seem to really what like desperately want to attach like a satanic story or some kind of... I think the, one of the ones that I found... Um, Kind of almost funny was uh, was it Newsweek? It's in your book. There's a bit where he talks about uh, like an acid-inspired occult ritual that Sharon Tate was involved with had caused the entire thing to happen or something like that. Right, right. Well, there's. I mean, this is a part of the myth and the reality of the thing. You uh, people can't really. I mean, we have today a sort of lame, half-assed occult revival. You have things like witch talk, and you know, a lot of young women uh, use the symbolism of occultism and witchcraft and that kind of thing. But what was going on in the 60s, what, even though a lot of it was superficial and drug-fueled idiocy, there was a serious magical revival going on at that time. And I get into this in great detail, especially in the UK edition, because a lot of it had to do with British yeah, like Kenneth Grant and people like that. There was a lot of that going on, wasn't there? And well, yes, and and the influence of Aleister Crowley, which came from the Beatles, the Rolling Stones flirting with satanic imagery that ended with Altamont. A lot of it has to do with British occultism. And the lecture that I'm going to give October 22nd in London for the official book launch of the UK Manson File edition will get into how British occultism in particular has been woven into this, the process church of the final judgment, Scientology, which was, as you probably know, pretty much headquartered in Britain at that time in East Grinstead. Yep, I remember that. And, and Bruce Davis, one of the Manson commune members, who actually went to study Scientology with Hubbard and actually met Hubbard, I recently learned. Um, the Eye of the Devil, uh, a rather obscure 1966 film, is what brought Sharon Tate to London in, in 1965, and she played a witch in that, and in the film you've got people wearing black hoods and that kind of thing. And when the murders happened, the sensational press, having no idea what the murders were about, in the first initial days after these crimes were committed, 
Even sober newspapers like the Los Angeles Times reported it as a ritual murder. It was not. And a lot of the descriptions of what happened were untrue. But the general public had the idea this is some sort, this is a result of all this occult activity. So the Process Church of the Final Judgment were falsely blamed, as, and I get into this in great detail, and I'll discuss it at my lecture in October, October 22nd. Um, a lot of people believe the Process Church of the Final Judgment, the Scientology splinter group run by Robert de Grimston, was you know, somehow responsible for teaching Charlie the ideas that led to the murder. And as I discuss in the book, that is not true at all. Actually, L. Ron Hubbard, who was extremely vindictive and unethical in every way, smeared his rival group, the Process Church, by letting newspapers know that there was a connection. So a lot of, you know, there, but there is a metaphysical connection. You can't deny that it is strange that every film that Sharon Tate made in her very brief career does have some sort of premonition of the murders. And, you know, the fact that Polanski made Rosemary's Baby, that was in the summer of 68, in the summer of 69, it was still very much on people's minds. And then my deluded and, and insane ex-father-in-law, Anton LaVey, added fuel to the fire by claiming that he played the devil in Rosemary's Baby. So, and that backfired on him when the media said, well, maybe these crimes have something to do with Satanists, you know, uh, avenging uh, their secrets being told in Rosemary's Baby. So these two films, Eye of the Devil, also Dance of the Vampires, in which Sharon Tate is presented as a sacrifice to Satan, and Rosemary's Baby, where you have weird premonitions of the crimes in that you have a baby being central to the theme, and of course Sharon Tate's baby was killed, and you, you have Mia Farrow, who actually knew Roman Polanski very well as a friend, and as you'll see in the book, I believe had connections to the Manson Commune that have been kept secret. So a lot of a lot of this has to do with Kenneth Anger's films, Lucifer Rising and Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome and Invocation of My Demon Brother, the film Eye of the Devil. A lot of it has to do with a, a public confusion about the difference between these occult satanic films of the 60s and the OTO, which have been falsely accused of involvement, the Process Church, and other British occult groups that were falsely dragged into this. It's interesting. But, we interviewed uh, Timothy Wiley, actually, from the Process Church. Sam and I yeah. did uh, a, a, long, a long time ago before he passed Ten away. years ago, probably. Yeah, and he, he was an interesting character, but all he seemed to want to talk about was uh, dolphins on ketamine. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. It. Yeah. He was not interested well, in the Process Church at this point. <laughs> yeah, he'd, uh, he'd fully, uh, yeah, even though he'd just released a book on it. But yeah. <laughs> well, actually, actually um, Zena, my ex-wife, who helped me with a lot of the research at that point in the 80s and 90s, when I was writing another book about the during the Satanic Panic, I was working on a book trying to give a sober idea of what that occult revival was really all about. And she is one of the few people who actually spoke to Robert de Grimston, the head of the Process Church. And what you're saying about Wiley is also true with him. De Grimston said to her, 
you know, this was just a youthful phase I was going through, and it's really of no consequence to me anymore, and it hasn't been for years. He just dismissed it as a, as a you know, practically a, a prank, a youthful lark. And yet, this gigantic myth has been created about the Process Church, uh, this horrible book, The Ultimate Evil, by Maury Terry, which gets a lot of circulation, and also dragged the process into the Son of Sam and the Tate Law Bianca murders. This sort of, you know, ridiculous fantasy that has infected the whole theme. So I, I mean, also as a practicing magician and someone who has known most of the major figures in occultism and magic and Satanism, I, in in the chapter The Wizard of the Manson File, I systematically debunk all of the, the false occult things. However, in saying that, I'm not denying there is a metaphysical aspect to this, but it doesn't really have anything to do with what people think it is, with these, with these or human organizations. There is a spiritual darkness to the thing. There's no doubt about it. And I would warn people not to get too deeply involved with this thing, because it's dangerous, it's volatile, and it is still very much, as I recently said, to a friend, it's it's still a live wire. If you look into this too deeply, what Nietzsche wrote about, if you look into the abyss, the abyss looks back at you, is very true with this case. It's interesting. So let's talk a bit about Manson's belief systems. Like I'm interested in his um, his uh, metaphysical beliefs and his mystical beliefs. Um, could we discuss that for a while? Yeah, in, in the Manson file, the chapter, The Wizard, is a very long chapter that's practically a book within itself and it in after the first Manson file came out in 1988 and it did very well and Charlie was was you know very supportive of it even you know wanting other prisoners to read it to have an idea of what he really believed as opposed to what the media was telling them or the rumors that even people who were doing time with him believed he wanted to do another book, which we never did, called The Mind of Charles Manson, which would have been simply about his philosophy and spiritual ideology. And so we discussed those things, and a lot of that went into this chapter in the Manson file, The Wizard. So, one, to sum it up, one sentence that I wrote in that chapter is, most people assume Charlie was a satanic Scientologist, but he was in fact a shamanic environmentalist. And that sort of sums it up. Uh, in essence, he was a Gnostic Christian. He really kept returning to Christian ways of belief. Uh, he, he was very influenced by Yogananda Paramahansa, who was a famous Indian guru's ideas of the Christ consciousness. And a lot of his misunderstood ideas that, you know, people think that he believed he was literally Jesus Christ come from this Yogananda's ideas about Christ consciousness. Uh, Charlie knew the Bible backwards and forwards. He was into the King James Bible. So in many ways, and he, he was raised in the Church of the Nazarene, a very strict Christian sect in the American South. And that certainly shaped him, um, but ultimately he was a mystic. He he was not 
he was not an ideologue. And a lot of people think, well, he stole his ideas from this cult and that cult and that Nietzsche, Crowley process, Scientology. That's, that's a misunderstanding. He was a mystic, and despite his criminality, and a lot of people find this hard to understand the dichotomy, he had genuine mystical experiences, totally independent of book learning. If this was not theory, and we talked about these things often. Another important aspect to his spiritual understanding was this very brief time that he was on the lam in Mexico in 1960. As early as that, he had gone to look for the psilocybin mushrooms and, and encountered the Yaqui Indians. And he, got, he went to the Pyramid of the Sun and Moon at Tehuetacan and you know, encountered Aztec shamans and that kind of thing long before the Castaneda thing and long before the hippies had adopted psychedelics. He sat, he told me that that's when his spiritual initiation really began was in Mexico. And that's a very under-researched and mysterious part of his life that often reminds me of the brief time that Lee Harvey Oswald was in Mexico. Uh, only a few years afterwards. Um, but uh, And basically, you, you can't really look at Charlie's spirituality without looking into his shamanic, animistic connection to nature. I mean, his Atwa teaching about the necessity, the urgent necessity of stopping pollution, of environmental activism, of animal rights, of vegetarianism, and now that's completely boring to somebody looking for satanic thrills and chills. But, and this is why in the subtitle of the book, I call him an outlaw shaman. Despite being a proud criminal, he had spiritual insight, direct mystical experience, and he had a certain amount of wisdom that connects to what Aldous Huxley would have called the perennial philosophy. And that's what he was really concerned about but but again when i talked to, when you asked what was he like again there was this great contradiction which i describe in the book as you know he was in, with the criminal underworld but he was equally involved with the spiritual genuine underworld and that was one of the great contradictions he could be the most petty scheming criminal and at the same time he had a, a great deal of spontaneous spiritual and initiatory wisdom yeah it's interesting it's um so one of the parts of the book i found particularly interesting was the story of mike deasy and how mm -hmm. and how he became involved with um manson and one of the things i found kind of interesting was that manson himself saw this as like a turning point for him didn't he and um so I was yeah. if we could, we could talk about the the sort of uh, the I guess the musical side of it, because it must have been frustrating for him being so kind of close to getting there, as it were, you know, in terms of, you know, he's there in the middle of like all of this, the music industry and the film industry. And it looks at one point like he might actually get, you know, accepted into that world. And then it all sort of gets taken away from him. And then, right. and then and now the Mike... you're, you're talking about the Mike Deasy story, as I explained it in the new edition of. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, to put that in context, again, to get into folklore and reality, myth and reality, the basic idea that has been put across by these music 
musicians that he knew very well and by you know people in the music industry in general and i saw this firsthand being a musician in los angeles even in the 80s that that, that cast a long shadow that was still going is that charlie was a talentless nobody nobody took him seriously and he you know he was frustrated by his lack of success in the music industry and therefore he struck out at terry melcher's house well that's completely the opposite of what's true and and in the manson file chapter again which is a very long book in itself called the minstrel i get into his actual musical career uh quite the contrary of him being a failure three months after he gets out of prison uh, a guy named phil kaufman who later became uh, the so-called nanny to the rolling stones in 1968 and he was the road manager for many famous bands in, uh, including the flying burrito brothers he knew graham parsons very well phil kaufman met Charlie in prison in 1966, right before he got out, and knew him then for a while, and he gave him a connection to a guy named Barry Stromberg at Uni Records, who was starting a boutique label to exploit the youthful market for rock music. So Universal was trying to appeal to the to to the hip market, and they were looking for counterculture figures to sign. So Kaufman sent Charlie to Stromberg. So three months after he gets out of prison, he's uni, the head of Uni Records uh, gave him money to go into Gold Star Studios, one of the best studios in L.A., where the Beach Boys and where Phil Spector had developed the Wall of Sound and where, you know, hundreds of hit records that you would know from the 60s were made. Charlie was given money to make a demo three months after getting out of prison, and they liked what they heard. And you can now hear that. That's been released as a bootleg many times. This night, it was recorded. One of the recordings was on 9/11 of 1967, very shortly after his release from prison. And they liked. I forget which one of the songs they said they were thinking of making it into a single. They said they would they put out a single, see how it did, and then give him an album if it worked, which was the usual procedure at that time. But Gary Stromberg was very close friends with Hugh Masekela, a South African trumpeter who played on the birds and who was a very well-known session musician at the time. And Gary Stromberg said, okay, we'll put out your single, Charlie, but I want Hugh Masekela to play on it. And because of Charlie's, you know, often exaggerated, but definitely their racial ideas, he did not want to mix African music with his music. So Charlie was often his own enemy in the music industry. So he was offered a deal, like we'll put out a single and see how it does, but Charlie absolutely refused to work with Hugh Masekela. So, and at the same time, another story I get into, he was hired as a technical advisor at Universal Studios at that time about the second coming of Jesus in modern times. But that's a whole other aspect that sort of gets into his spiritual beliefs. So he was there in Universal Studios. He was meeting all these people. 
which I get into in the book. He was, you know, people in the film industry knew who he was. They saw him. People in the music industry supported him. He fucked up his own chances more than anyone else. But with, he had a sort of, I mean, you could say an admirable integrity that he refused to compromise. On the other hand, he was not very realistic about how the music industry at the time worked. So he was given this opportunity. And then right after that, Neil Young discovered him uh, at the Corral, which was the nightclub in Manga Canyon, and really liked Charlie's music, tried to pitch it to Mo Austin of Reprise Records, the record company that Frank Sinatra owned, which gets into some more of the mafia connections with Frank Sinatra, which I get into in the book. You have Universal Records thinking this guy has potential, put out a single. You had Neil Young. Neil Young said this he could be a new Dylan. He said if you you know if you put a proper band behind this guy, you couldn't stop him. He Neil Young's one of the few people who's been honest about how admired Charlie was in the music industry at that moment. Uh, Reprise didn't sign him, but, you know, lots of good artists were not signed for whatever reason. Then in April of 68, and this is another myth that I explode, the idea is that he met Dennis Wilson because two of the commune girls were hitchhiking and Dennis Wilson picked them up. I'm sure you've heard that story. That's not what happened. Actually, Dennis Wilson met Charlie at Gary Hinman's house during a drug deal. And I've heard various ways that that went about. And Dennis and Charlie formed not only a friendship, but Dennis Wilson was bisexual and they had a sexual relationship, which Charlie admitted to me and other people were aware of. And and weirdly, too, Dennis Wilson was also having a relationship with Rudy Altabelli, the very out flamboyantly gay owner of Cielo Drive, who owned that house during Terry Melcher's residency and Polanski's tenancy there. So they formed a very deep bond, and, and Dennis Wilson, I'll get into this in my lecture, in the British rock press, in 1969, very near to the murders, Dennis Wilson was ranting and raving about how great Charlie is and how he's going to put out a record with him and even spouting Manson-esque philosophy to the British press. Now, none of this got into the California court system, but if it did, it would totally debunk the idea that Wilson had, had denounced Charlie and broken with him. So, getting to the Deasy story, but I just want to make it clear uh, Charlie recorded with Frank Zappa. He knew Jim Morrison, who admired him and his music. Uh, he knew the band Spirit. Randy California liked him. He even opened once for Canned Heat um, at the Corral Records, so at the Corral Nightclub. So he knew, you know, tons of musicians, famous musicians, and worked with them, and they admired him generally. He was looked at as like this guy's going to be the next big thing. In fact, Brian Wilson introduced Charlie to this session player, Carol Kay, from the Wrecking Crew, famous studio session unit, and said, this guy's going to be the next big thing of 1970. So that, that's the reality of his, you know, he, he nearly had a... Re Terry Melcher recorded 
songs with the wrecking crew. People don't believe that. They think he was refused to be recorded. In fact, Terry Melcher did record it. And then that gets into the Mike Deasy thing you're asking about. Apparently, Charles and Terry Melcher were not satisfied with the recording they did with the wrecking crew. Charlie felt it was too slick and overproduced. Terry Melcher felt it was too raw. And so the idea was hatched, well, let's try to record you in your natural habitat at the at Spawn Ranch. Like, we'll, we'll send a mobile recording unit. And this guy, Mike Deasy, had been recording Native American rituals out in the field. So he brought this mobile recording unit, which was rare in 1969, to the Spawn Ranch. And, and apparently hours and hours of film were made for a documentary, a TV documentary about communal life with Charlie and the girls playing music. And about, for about three days, I believe in June of 69, that went on. And Mike Deasy was the, had been playing with Elvis. You, you can hear his guitar on Glenn Campbell's music. He, he's, he's a session man who played on hundreds of hit songs. You know, very influential musician at the top, the cream of the crop of session people. So this is the caliber of people who were working with Charlie. And what happened is Charlie or somebody in the commune gave Mike Deasy an acid tab, a very potent one. He had a bad trip and he hallucinated that Charlie was the devil and attacked him with some farming equipment that happened to be at the Spawn Ranch. And he got beaten by supposedly Tex Watson and Bruce Davis defending Charlie from him. And I don't know exactly what it is, but as you read in the book, Charlie said that this incident in some way triggered the Cielo Drive murders. Uh, I don't know exactly how, but I get into the possibilities of that in the book. And Terry Melcher showed up, this producer who had been Charlie's patron, and had to accompany a beaten and bruised and uh, having a bad trip Mike Deasy from the ranch. And this incident kind of put distance between Charlie and Terry Melcher. Though he still wanted to work with them, he was starting to think this is too dangerous and too erratic. And also, Deasy, that incident, Charlie made clear, was very important somehow in leading to the tensions of Cielo Drive. But I, I, I write down everything I could figure out about it and what Charles told me about it in the book. But it's a mysterious thing. What exactly... Why did he feel that way? I can't tell you. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so <clears throat> we're going to have to let you go fairly soon. Um, but um, I'd like to talk about the way Manson's been portrayed in film and television, because that that's always fascinated me a little bit. It, they seem to get it so utterly wrong. <laughs> um, I mean, the most recent uh, sort of depiction I saw was, uh, it was a David Duchovny um tv series um aquarius aquarius that was it yeah and uh they seem to play fast and loose with the the mythology there anyway <laughs> right one. well the yeah the final chapter of the manson files called the soul for sale 
and it gets into the media misrepresentation of Charlie. All the the first wave of of cheap exploitation movies that were put out in nineteen as early as early late sixty nine and seventy and seventy one to seventy three, there was a wave of satanic hippie movies that exploited the public folklore about the case. And then there were the two. I think most people's idea of Charles, whether they know it or not doesn't come from the real person, but from Steve Railsback's cartoonish portrayal of him in the 1976 Helter Skelter movie. And yeah, the media, the media, and of course it's Hollywood telling a lie to protect Hollywood. They will never tell the real story. And I, I get into all of the misrepresentations. I, I think what a lot of people know about this whole case comes from these terrible films that keep being churned out. And I get into early on in the book, the fact is Quentin Tarantino's, I guess that's the most recent, and and actually that, that brought up a whole new wave of ignorant interest in the Manson case. Quentin Tarantino, I think, deliberately covered up what happened by telling the story the way he told it. I, I believe Quentin Tarantino knows exactly what happened. When you consider the kind of people in the Hollywood elite that he knows, I have reason to believe he knows exactly that it was a drug deal gone wrong at the highest echelon of Hollywood. And I think he told this fairy tale as part of a, you know, an ongoing whitewashing of what happened. The way he presents Jay Sebring and Frakowski and Sharon Tate totally whitewashing them and and making them seem completely like the innocent random strangers that the helter-skelter myth puts across. I don't believe he thinks that. So so the films, as goofy as they are, and including the two helter-skelter versions, they are really a part of Hollywood covering up. So speaking about what really happened, what actually did happen from your research and you know how did Manson get dragged into it I seem to remember I think initial interviews police interviews with the suspects they all kind of say that it's a bad drug deal essentially and then everyone changes their mind when Vincent Bugliosi steps in to interview a couple of people mm-hmm. yes that well you know a lot of people say well this is Shrek's crazy conspiracy theory that it was a drug deal gone wrong. In fact, if you if you look at the actual archives of this thing, within days, within a day of, first of all, the police in their second homicide report accurately described what I know happened, is that it was a drug deal gone wrong. In essence, without getting into the complicated details, Linda Kasabian, who was an accomplished drug dealer, even though she was a teenager from 1967 on and had a long history of dealing drugs and criminality, came into the Manson Commune on July 4th of 1969. And I should add, there's some people who believe that that maybe she had connections with them before. I have not seen any evidence of it. So this major drug dealer, Linda Kasabian, enters the Manson Commune, and that's when the mayhem really turns horrific and bloody. 
because she was in fact the instigator of all of this, along with Charles Tex Watson, who she had an immediate sexual rapport with. They, they met on the ranch and had what they described as a mind-blowing, you know, mutual orgasm, and they, and they bonded, and they became like a hippie Bonnie and Clyde. And they, Linda Kasabian stole $5,000, which was a hell of a lot of money in 1969 terms, from the boyfriend of her ex-husband, Bob Kasabian, a guy named Blackbeard Charlie, and he, she took this money to Tex Watson, and they invested some of it in a new drug called MDA, and what was called fairy dust in, in the hippie vernacular at the time, that, w that Wojtek Frakowski, Roman Polanski's friend, who was living at Cielo Drive while Sharon and Roman were in Europe filming, um, he cornered the market on this MDA, which, which eventually became what we think of as ecstasy today. But it was a brand new psychedelic on the market, so very in demand. Tex Watson and Linda Kasabian wanted to corner the market on the street distribution of this new drug. They invested money in it. They, they gave Wojtek Frakowski a large amount of money from this 5000 and Frakowski did not deliver. He burned them for some reason or other. I don't think deliberately, but something went wrong in the distribution, which was coming from Canada, apparently. Um, and in essence, Susan Atkins wanted to get money for a lawyer to try to get Bobby Beausoleil, I described that incident earlier, out of prison, or at least to show that they supported him because she was afraid that Bobby Beausoleil would snitch on her because she was present and participated in the murder of Gary Hinman. This was on August 6th, Bobby Beausoleil was arrested. So she, she said, we need to get money to get a lawyer for Bobby. Linda Kasabian said, well, I know where we can get that money. There's going to be a drug deal tonight. Everyone in Hollywood apparently knew there was a big drug delivery that Friday night to Sebring and Frakowski at the Polanski house at Cielo Drive. So Tex and Linda went there to rob Frakowski and Sebring of the drugs that were being delivered as revenge for being burned. So there's a lot more to it. There's a lot more tensions between these people. And in fact, I get into the book Something that surprised me, in 2012, Charlie revealed to me how well he knew Abigail Folger for two years before this, and that he was angry at her for not giving him money when he needed it. So that's a factor that has to be considered. But ultimately, it's, it was Tex and Linda went to Cielo Drive to rob, to get drugs and money. Why they needed it, that's a complicated thing that I get to into the book. That would require another hour of explanation. But the gist of it is that. Then the LaBianca murders the next night, and I should point out too, Stephen Parent, the supposedly innocent bystander, this 18-year-old kid who was killed in the car, there's a lot more to that than has ever been understood. And one thing that I reveal in the British edition of the book, which I didn't have, I couldn't get into the slightly earlier world operations version, 
is I have first-hand confirmation that Manson himself tried to fence Sharon Tate's stereo equipment that was stolen from Cielo Drive uh, on the night of the murders to a nightclub owner that he was befriended with. So the police knew that. They knew it was a drug robbery, and they never revealed that because the police interviewed the person that Charlie tried to sell this to. But that was never made publicly known until now. So the question is, why did the police and law enforcement go out of their way to cover up what was a, basically a squalid drug deal gone wrong that involved mafia narcotics traffickers? Uh, and I try to answer that in the very long outlaw chapter of my book. Then the La Bianca murders are even more mysterious than that. There, I don't even claim to have an explanation of what that was about, but it's much more suspicious than you think. La Bianca had very direct underworld mafia connections. He was greatly in debt. And the La Biancas had been threatened and were in fear of losing their lives since late 1968 when they moved into what was his mother's house on Waverly. So the La Bianca thing is even more mysterious than the Cielo Drive murders. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It's, there's so many... I mean, we could do show after show after show on this subject, couldn't we, quite easily. Um, but thank you so much for giving us some more of your time. Now, you mentioned that you're coming to London again. Um, could you give right. us uh, a brief, brief overview of what it is you're going to be talking about and some dates, please? Yeah, if you go to the Eventbrite page um, for the the Manson File UK book launch, that will be October 22nd, and it's held at this beautiful venue, the Art Workers Guild on Queen Street in London. And that will be a, a pretty much a gala event in Mansonism because I will be doing a ritual inauguration of the book. I will be giving a talk on the London and UK connections to the Manson saga, which are many more than people think. People have the idea that this is a quintessential LA story, but it actually all began in, Lon in swinging London. It's what it's really about. So I get into all of the many British Connections. I'll be giving a talk. I'll be showing a rare screening of my film, Charles Manson Superstar from 1989. And then I will be signing, personally signing the book of the, the uh, ultimate edition, the UK edition of the Manson file from Crossbank. And yeah, if people can't come to the event, though of course they are invited to, they can order the book until Halloween. There's a special low price from Crossbank Publishing, so they can order the UK edition of the Manson File wherever you are in the world. But I hope that you and some of your listeners, that I will meet you on October 22nd in London at the Art Workers Guild. Well, we'll definitely be there. And, definitely uh, be there. Yeah, excellent. Well, thanks so much for giving us some more of your time, and uh, I look forward to seeing you at the event. Yeah, it maybe was a we pleasure. Should, okay. Should have a follow up uh, afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, we we great. have just scratched the surface, as you said. There are there are many deeper areas to go into. But thank you for your time. Thank you for inviting me, and I will see you in London on the twenty second. Thank you very much. Cheers. Brilliant. Okay. Many blessings to you. Bye. To you.
And we are back. So how did you find that interview? Illuminating. Yeah, you? it's very good. That Timothy Leary bit, that really blew my mind. Yeah, do you know what? I didn't actually know about that. And I've read quite a lot around the subject over the years. And I, that either slipped my mind or I didn't know about it at all. But yeah, um, you know, 30 plus years of research Nicholas has done. So, you know, he really knows his stuff. But definitely, I think we only really scratched the surface. Oh, yeah. And we're definitely going to have to uh, come back to this subject with, with Nicholas Shrek. Uh, and like, um, we're hoping to go to the event and uh, maybe do some video business um, in London. So that'll be that'll be fun. And uh, yeah, so if you want to connect with us, um, Instagram at Sitting Now, YouTube at Sitting Now, SittingNow.co.uk, obviously the site. Um, and we are, yeah, we're interested in talking to you. So send us messages. People are sending us messages now, which is always nice. Um, some weirder ones, but you know keep it nice <laughs> anyway um we'll <laughs> see you uh, next episode party on bye bye <laughs>